Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> this morning, we start into the second major section of the book of 1 Peter. The section ending with verses 9 and 10 drew our attention to the wonder of God's work of salvation in believers. In that salvation, God sovereignly rescues and guards a people for himself through the saving work of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we will find that Peter is especially eager now to produce real practical change in our lives. He labors for us to see that the Christian life is more than just casual belief in the existence of God. The outworking of our faith shouldn't look like someone standing at a pinball machine who pulls the handle back and launches the ball onto the table, but never thinks to activate the flippers. No, once the ball's in play, you've got to flip the flippers with precision and intention. Friends, God is calling us in our text today to be Christ-emulating people who act with precision and intention for His glory. This morning, we will encounter some weighty imperatives in our text. May God grant us not to just see these mountainous imperatives, but to marvel at the massive granite foundations that hold those mountains in place. Look with your Bibles at me. Excuse me. Look with, your, with me at your Bibles as we read our text for today. We will start in verse 9 if you have your Bibles open. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Our sermon this morning is going to have one main point, which we will apply to two specific areas of life. Again, one main overarching point with two practical instructions. And as we look at those practical instructions, what I hope we will see is that to Peter, as important as the goals he is aiming for are the grounds he lays the instructions on. The grounds for Peter are as important as the goals. The main theme of our passage is this. We aim to glorify God by becoming more like Jesus. Or to say another way, we strive to live holy sacrificial lives like Jesus did in order to magnify the glory of God. A helpful way to think about that magnification that you may have heard in John Piper's preaching and that our brother Marcus has shared from this pulpit before is not magnification as a microscope. A microscope works to make something really small look bigger than it actually is. No, we want to magnify God's glory like a telescope. A telescope works to make something that is massive look as big as it really is. And so to magnify the glory of God is to make him look as glorious as he really is. And in our text this morning, we will see that our goal is to hold that telescope up for the world through our holy living and our faithful Christ-emulating suffering. As we begin in verses 11 and 12, think of these verses as the thematic banner that are flying over our text. Peter's primary or exhortation here can be summed up by saying, abstain from sin and embrace holiness. Abstain from sin, embrace holiness. Look with me for a moment at the immediate context of these verses uh, in verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 contain the first theological bedrock that Peter intends for Christians to stand on as they make war against sin and aim to grow in real, right now, practical holiness. And that bedrock is this. Your fundamental identity, Christian, is as God's sovereignly chosen vessel of mercy. God saved you. You are his chosen people. The language in these verses is straight out of Exodus 19. There, God instructs Moses to tell the people of Israel that if they will obey his voice and keep his covenant, then they shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and his treasured possession. Language that Peter now applies to Christians. Peter's point is that just as God sovereignly delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, and promised to make them his people, God has sovereignly and mercifully delivered you, Christians, from your slavery to sin. You are now partakers of a new covenant of grace and are secure as God's elect people. Christians are now called sojourners and exiles in this God-opposed world because our true home is now with God himself. So we must abstain from worldly passions because they're utterly opposed 
to our new identity. We're God's people. Therefore, he means for us to grow in likeness to his holiness. Now, this type of logic is all over the Bible. Peter reminds Christians something that is true of them. You are God's people, not the world's. And then tells them to become and live like what they are. Live as God's people, not the world's people. We have to see this logic. It's God-inspired logic. It's logic we can build our lives on. And to further motivate our fight against sin, Peter, Peter points out that those worldly passions wage war against our very souls. Friend, if you're tempted to belittle the danger of sin this morning, be warned that sin is seeking to destroy your soul forever. Its aim is to secure for you an eternity of suffering by alluring you with worldly, soul-destroying pleasures that elevate self and neglect God. Therefore, we must actively oppose the remaining corrupt desires of our flesh. We cannot afford to be a neutral party in the battle for holiness because sin is not a neutral party. It's constantly seeking to make us ineffective, weak, and guilt-ridden people. We have to keep close watch over our hearts and use the God-inspired logic of this passage to battle our sin. Christian, you belong to God. God's mercy towards you is owing nothing to your own doing, but because of his own purpose and grace. You've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Therefore, fight to endure to the end through a life of wartime exertion against sin. Brothers and sisters, when you're tempted with sin this week, go to God's word and remind yourself of the warnings and promises offered to God's people. Remind yourself that you're a sojourner in a sin-saturated world and that sin seeks the eternal ruin of your soul. Believe that God has effectually called you out of darkness, that you're now his forever treasured possession. Believe that belonging to God is infinitely better than the empty promises of sin. Be amazed that God has purchased for you an eternal inheritance at the cost of his son, Jesus Christ, and then on the basis of all those promises, make war on your sin. When we deny ourselves worldly pleasure now, because our eyes are on our eternal reward, we magnify God's glory to the world. But when hypocrisy creeps in, when our lives don't line up with what we say we believe, when we ignore God and elevate ourselves, we flip the telescope around and make God's huge, magnificent glory look small. There has to be a harmony between our profession of faith and the practical outworking of that faith. Because that harmony glorifies God. It shows that he's worth banking your life on. But consider this also. In our text, Peter argues that we should view our holy living as a means through which others come to see the wonder of the gospel and they themselves glorify God through believing it. Surely Peter learned this vision from Jesus' own words 
that we heard in our New Testament reading from Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Unbelievers should look at our lives and be attracted to the gospel, how it overcomes our sinful inclinations, how it frees us from fear of man and of death, and how it energizes us to live for the good of others and the glory of God. And when this harmony is not present, we put up obstacles to others seeing the power and beauty of the gospel. Living like the world hinders our witness to unbelievers. So we not only honor God, but we love our unbelieving family and friends well by abstaining from selfishness. To summarize the main point of our text as we move into the the two real-life scenarios that Peter wants us to consider... Because we belong to God and no longer to the world, we strive to live holy lives, free from our former bonds of sin, so that God would be glorified. And specifically, we want unbelievers to see our holy living and turn to believe in the one true God. When that happens, God gets great glory. Look with me now at verses 13 through 17 which contain the first of two specific imperatives in our text. Peter's first practical instruction is for Christians to be obedient to civil authorities. Recall, though, that in Peter's arguments, to hear that instruction alone is not enough. The grounds for the instruction are as important as the goal of the instruction. So, let's spend some time examining, examining Peter's argument. Here's what I think Peter's main point is in verses 13 to 17. God intends that our unwavering allegiance to him would be a means of magnifying his worth to the world. Again, God intends that our unwavering allegiance to him would be a means of magnifying his worth to the world. Recall in verse 12 how Peter says that there will be some unbelievers who even in response to honorable conduct, will slander you as evil. Perhaps their moral sense has been distorted by a lifetime of sin, leading to ignorance. Perhaps they want to distract themselves from guilt and the pain of sin that has been caused in their own souls, leading to foolishness. Whatever the reason, they're looking for ammo, and Peter says, give them nothing. Let your rigorous obedience to civil authority prove their slanders baseless. When we lack faith in God's good purposes and plans and give occasion to disobedience to those in authority, we don't magnify God's glory. That kind of living gives credence to the foolish man's view that this life now is most ultimate. The fool thinks his life, which the psalmist psalmist describes as like a breath, and like a passing shadow, is the ultimate reality. And our obedience to civil authority should demonstrate our faith that God is sovereignly working all things according to his wise counsel. That means our obedience is itself an act of worship. It is for the Lord's sake, because in it we proclaim that he is the final and ultimate authority. Our submission should cause others to retract their false accusations and plead to know about the hope that we have in Christ. 
We don't have to take shortcuts around laws and regulations. We don't have to desperately cling to this life as our greatest treasure because we have the assurance of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 16. When Peter says, live as people who are free, he again uses the same God-inspired logic that we saw before. He points out what is true of Christians in order to spur on obedience. I think a faithful paraphrase of this would be to say, you are free, so live like it. Or, live like you're free, because you really are free. To remind you, Christian, before we were saved, Romans 6 says we were slaves of sin, living shamefully on the easy life, excuse me, living shamefully on the easy way to the wide gate of destruction. But now God has freed us from our slavery to sin, and we have become slaves of God. He has given us a new heart that desires to please him because we know and love the truth that he is God. True Christians don't use their blood-bought freedom from sin as a license to continue in sin. We've tasted and seen the glory and supremacy of God. Serving God is not the burden we once imagined it would be. It's a joy. Our souls are revived and our hearts now rejoice in his law and precepts, as did David in Psalm 19. Being servants of God is completely unlike being slaves of sin. The slave master sin only sought our destruction by labeling us guilty before God. Consider now, Christian, you slave of God, the command that you will spend eternity obeying as God's servant, that of enter into the joy of your master. That is, see and savor, experience and enjoy God's glory forever. So as slaves of God, now we reckon our lives of sinful exaltation formally to be what they really are, a bondage, void of all hope of eternal joy. And we have the only true freedom, a life of reverence and allegiance towards God. We revere God, and therefore we are free to honor everyone, including those in authority over us. Tying it back to Peter's point here, God's will is that we would remember what is true of us in Jesus and willingly obey civil authority with a confident faith in the sovereignty of God. First imperative concluded. The second imperative from our text is conveyed by Peter to all Christians through an instruction given to servants. Now pause for a moment. We have a couple brief notes of importance. First, we simply don't have time this morning to discuss the distinctions between first century servanthood and the abhorrent practices of race-based chattel slavery. Second, regardless of the distinctions, it would simply be invalid to say that by giving instructions to servants, Peter is somehow approving of the practice of slavery. It's not hard to see, for example, how a pastor can give godly instruction to a divorcee or step-parent without approving of divorce in all circumstances. Third, it would be misguided to restrict Peter's instruction here only to servants. 
imagine, if you will, a football coach giving a halftime speech in the locker room, but throughout the speech, his attention and words are clearly directed at one player on the team, just one player. And the coach is calling on that player to give a superhuman effort in the second half. Now, it would clearly be wrong for all the other players on the team to assume that the coach's direction was only meant for that one player. Surely, the coach means for all players to give their best effort. In the same way, Peter's instruction here applies to all Christians across all of history, regardless of social status. And so, the instruction for all Christians here is the call to endure undeserved suffering while doing good. The call to, to endure undeserved suffering while doing good. In the way Peter lays out his instruction, I think he intends for us to see that both why and how we suffer is inseparable from why and how Jesus suffered. So, let's consider first what Peter says about why Jesus suffered. There are three reasons that Peter mentions here. The first, <clears throat> the first and all-important reason that Peter gives for why Jesus suffered was to secure for us our justification. I love that word, our justification. A justification meaning declaring us once for all not guilty before God. <clears throat> Jesus Christ, God's perfect son, bore for believers the moral cost of our sins in his body. He satisfied the wrath of God that those who trust Jesus were storing up for themselves by their sinful living and opposition towards God. And Peter uses exact words from Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah to describe this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God in laying on Jesus the iniquity of us all now credits to all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus the righteousness of Jesus, the very one on whom their sin was punished. Christ's righteousness really becomes ours, and our righteousness has been credited to him on the cross. And the Bible teaches that this forgiveness becomes ours only by repenting of our sin and putting our faith in Jesus. Praise God, Jesus offers, excuse me, Jesus purchased our redemption on the cross and now offers it freely to all who would look to and trust in him. If you're here and are not a Christian, or if you don't know if you are a Christian, and you rightly feel that you are in fact a God-dishonoring sinner, there is a free offer of grace to you this morning in the gospel. Look to Jesus and trust in his righteousness, not your own. If you would just feel your need of him 
and put your faith in him, you would leave here today justified once for all, for eternity. Friend, his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance and faith. So the first reason why Jesus suffered is for our right standing before God, for our justification. Peter's second reason why Jesus suffered was to enable our sanctification. Again, second why is to enable our sanctification. Sanctification being the reality that God purposes and carries out in us a growth in holiness and conformity to Jesus in this life now. Peter says that Jesus bore our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And Peter's use of the word might does not imply that righteous living in the footsteps of Jesus is optional. The word might serves to highlight our previous inability to live in such a way that pleased God, which the life and death of Jesus now enables. Consider, for example, the sentence, I turned the light on so that you might see where you're walking. I'm saying you were not able to see, and I turned the light on so that you would see. Similarly, we were alive to sin and dead to righteousness, and Jesus died so that we would die to sin and would live to righteousness. There's simply no biblical category for Christians who want to use Jesus as a means for justification without sanctification, for new standing without new living. Professing Christians who only want to be free from their guilty conscience and have zero interest in holy living are not true Christians. They are on the Titanic and oblivious of the doctrinal iceberg of holiness that will one day be the proof that their confession of faith was not genuine. The Bible is replete with support for Peter's emphasis here on sanctification. Romans 7.4, Paul says that our union to Jesus was so that we might bear fruit for God. 1 Thessalonians 4.7, Paul says, God has called us not for impurity, but in holiness. Hebrews 12.14 says, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And God himself, in describing the new covenant that Jesus would one day secure by his blood, says in Ezekiel 11 that he will give us a new spirit that we may walk in his statutes and keep his rules and obey them. And in our passage, Peter leaves no place for Christians to think that they can coast through life. The third reason Peter gives for why Jesus suffered is really just a specific facet of uh, the second reason, our sanctification, a sub-point, if you will. And it's this, that Jesus died so that he would be an example for us of righteous living in the midst of suffering. We're told that Jesus, in his suffering, left us footsteps in order that we might follow him. Again, in order that we would follow him. Praise God, our Savior not only purchased our right standing with God and our ability to grow in holiness, but himself 
modeled the very type of faithfulness and suffering that he calls us to have. Christian, the footsteps of Jesus are real footsteps made by the feet of the real man, Jesus Christ. And those footsteps, the ones he calls you and I to follow in, they're covered in the spit of his persecutors and are stained by his own blood. Jesus' footsteps are resolute, not backtracked or wavering with indecision, but resolutely heading to the cross. And so too, he calls us to have resolute faith in him. His footsteps are established. They've been tread on by Christians before us, and they remain clearly marked and preserved for us by God in his word. And oh, they are not the final footsteps of life, but form a pathway headed for eternal glory in the presence of God. His footsteps walk through suffering into glory. This call to follow in the footsteps of Jesus should not sound new. The Gospels record Jesus' instruction to those who would follow him that they should deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. Later in 1 John 2, 5 through 6, the Apostle John explains how we can know we belong to God. He says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And when we look to the example of Christ, we see the blueprint. We see how to fulfill this high calling. And so now we turn from the why of Christ's sufferings to very briefly look at the how. Peter says, Christ did not return evil for evil, but entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus countered the temptation to exact justice on his persecutors by fixing his eyes on the character and trustworthiness of his father. And that is the model for us. That's the blueprint for all growth in holiness, and especially in this facet of holiness, the modeling of Christ while suffering. When you face undeserved anguish this week or anywhere in your life, when your classmates or coworkers label you as boring or as a prude, or when you're called a bigot by cultural relativists, or when you're targeted physically, emotionally, or financially because of your faith, look to God and believe that he is just. Our battle to persevere is not a battle of willpower. It's a battle to believe in faith all that God is for us in Jesus. Jesus looked to his father and believed that he would accomplish what he promised, a free offer of mercy to sinners. And we look to God and believe that he did accomplish what he promised and that we really are recipients of his mercy in Christ. Christian, you never graduate to a different gospel. The gospel of salvation by grace through faith by which we were justified is the same gospel of salvation by grace through faith by which we are sanctified. Notice the first thing Peter says after saying that Jesus died for us to be sanctified. What does he want believers to immediately hear? By his wounds, you have been healed. 
only when we believe and love that we are justified by Christ do we have any hope of growing in his likeness. We have to get that ordering right. And so no matter who you are today, believer or unbeliever, look to Jesus. Look to him, unbeliever, as the grounds for your right standing before Almighty God that you might be saved. And look to him, believer, as the grounds for your right standing before Almighty God that you might now grow in holiness. Hebrews chapter 2 encourages Christians to lay aside our sin and run the race set before us with endurance by looking to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Look to Jesus as the grounds of every step in your faith and look to Jesus as the example you are called to emulate to the world. He considered the joy of reunion with God and the accomplishment of our redemption and endured the cross for you. You now consider the joy of reunion with God purchased for you by Christ and endure while doing good. The how of Christ's suffering was through fixing his mind on the character and trustworthiness of God the Father. And Peter in chapter 4, verse 19 of this letter, calls Christians explicitly to this same mindset by saying, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That is, engage your mind to consider and trust the power and faithfulness of God. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Answer, he will. He will. And that strategy for how we suffer is exactly what we should have come to expect from this text. Remember, I argued that the main point of this text is that we strive to live holy, sacrificial lives like Jesus did in order to magnify the glory of God. Now, why we suffer is not identical to why Jesus suffered. Only Jesus's obedient suffering purchases forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But Peter has been clear that our obedience to God is one of the appointed means through which God intends to lead others to Christ as they see the hope that we have in God. And so one reason why we are to endure suffering while doing good and looking to God is in order to give people a physical presentation of the sufferings of Jesus, to point them to the hope we have in God and show them how true and durable it is. God doesn't get glory from enduring suffering through sheer power of will. He desires that we lean on him not just for our own sake, but for the sake of unbelievers. We should, like Paul, be always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Nothing is lacking in the sufferings of Jesus except for this personal presentation of suffering, as John Piper calls it. And so rounding out this second imperative as we draw to a close, Peter emphasizes that on the basis of the redemption we have in Christ, 
we are called to trust God in the midst of suffering because our emulation of Jesus in this way magnifies his worth and glory to a fallen world. Oswald Sanders said of this kind of gospel-motivated suffering that nothing moves people more than the print of the nails and the mark of the spear. It gives the world a personal presentation of the sufferings of Christ who died so that we and our persecutors could have God's real offer of grace extended to them. And so as you leave today, if you are not a Christian, I just plead with you, look to Jesus. See his glory in dying for your sin and trust him for your justification. If you will, you can leave assured that by his wounds, you have been forever healed. And the declaration not guilty is made over you by God. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, the already justified, I plead with you, look to Jesus. See his glory in dying for your sin and trust him for your justification and cling to it as the basis of your progress in sanctification. The Apostle John says that the full accomplishment of our conformity to Christ will be when he appears because we shall see him as he is. We will see him as he is and in seeing we will be like him. And so our fight now in this life is a fight to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Let's wage war against our enemy sin by fighting to believe all that God has promised to those who trust in Jesus. May God cause our allegiance to him to shine brightly for the gospel in a hostile world. And if our suffering would come, may God sustain us to image Jesus as we hold the telescope up for the world to see him for as wonderful as he really is. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that when we were straying like sheep, afflicting our souls with sin, you mercifully drew us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Keep us this week from hypocrisy. Help us to magnify your glory by a steadfast faith in your promises and guard our hearts until we see you face to face in all your glory. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.